Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Wednesday, January 4th. Well, the chaos in Congress continues. There have now been a total of five votes to try to elect the new Speaker of the House. It's uh, not looking good for Kevin McCarthy. He uh, is going down in vote totals, not up. On this most recent fifth ballot, we got the regular, all the Democrats voting for Hakeem Jeffries, 212. Kevin McCarthy down to 201. He was at 203 last ballot. And somebody who um, doesn't really have a chance, you know, he's another straw man. Uh, Representative uh, Byron Donalds is the new um, face that the rebels who hate Kevin McCarthy, the never McCarthy contingent, he got uh, 20 votes. Yesterday, remember, they were uh, nominating Jim Jordan against his will. Uh, today, they have put up Representative Donalds. Um, what's interesting, though, <laughs> a couple of things. First of all, Matt Gates, who is definitely, if not the leader, then certainly the most vocal of the Never McCarthy crowd. He actually sent a letter to the bureaucracy in Washington saying, uh, why did you let Kevin McCarthy move his stuff into the speaker's office? He hasn't been elected speaker. And what are you going to do about it? A couple of people retweeted the letter. And, you know, they said he's not wrong. I mean, obviously, he's doing it to get McCarthy's goat. I don't know what bad blood is between the two of them. But, man, Matt Gates. Matt Gates would rather keep Congress from doing anything for the whole rest of the year than vote for Kevin McCarthy. So uh, CNN this morning has been talking to some of the more moderate Republicans in Congress, people who have been staunch supporters of Kevin McCarthy. Some of them still are, but some of them are um, beginning to think that there has to be some give somewhere to get this clown car performance wrapped up. And at least one Republican congressperson said, you know, I don't know how many more votes we're going to give this before we find somebody that we can all rally around. Steve Scalise and uh, Elise Stefanik are two names that pop up. Steve Scalise's name popping up a little bit more today as uh, somebody who might be acceptable to the more moderates in the Republican Party and the more radical members. As as one of the people who was commenting today said, though, and and we all know this is true, the really weird thing In an effort to garner their votes, Kevin McCarthy promised the radical right faction of his party 
He gave them everything they wanted. They wanted certain committees. He promised they would get them. Um, they wanted certain rules to, to be adopted as how Congress operates, namely that all it takes is five of them to basically call a new election for speaker. If five people don't like what the speaker's doing, they can call for a new speaker. Um, all kinds of rules that didn't exist when Nancy Pelosi was speaker. They want to, they're older rules. They want to see them all reinstated. And basically what it would mean is that they want a Congress where the speaker has a lot less power and where individual Congress people have a lot more power. And Kevin McCarthy said yes. He said yes to everything. And they still won't vote for him. A hundred years ago, nine votes. And in that Congress, the small radical faction that was trying to disrupt things after nine, well, after eight votes, they threw in the towel and they went with the majority. I don't know if we're going to see the Lauren Boberts and the Matt Gateses of the world do that. We may be in a different situation because they don't really care. They don't care about the disruption. As a matter of fact, they seem to be enjoying it. <laughs> they seem to be enjoying it. And um, some of the Republicans are getting very frustrated with this situation. Very frustrated. Republican Congressman Don Bacon, he's the Republican who serves in Nebraska, was uh, being interviewed on MSNBC last night, and he gave voice to a lot of the frustration that pretty much all the Republicans are feeling right now. Listen to this. This is going to be a long haul. This is going to, be a, this is going to take a long time to get done. There's uh, 19 or 20, now maybe 21 individuals who want to just stop this, stop Kevin McCarthy at all costs. What I'd like to communicate is what bothers us is they were given everything in the, over the last month in concessions, gained every single concession they asked for, and they could not get to yes. Uh, and they're obviously it's a personal thing directed towards Kevin McCarthy, but that's not right. We had 85 percent voted for Kevin. Now it's 91 percent. The right thing to do is to coalesce around a single person and, and be a team. Teams win. I've led teams in combat. If you're not unified, uh, you get defeated. And so it's to come upon this group to come in. One more thing I'd like to point out. We could have already passed three major pieces of legislation. We could have had our committees filled. And it's all on hold right now because of this. Nine percent of our, our our conference. That was Republican Nebraska Congressman Don Bacon uh, giving voice to the frustration that a lot of Republicans in Congress, you know, the vast majority of the Republicans in Congress want to just elect Kevin McCarthy and get on with the business of being in Congress. But here's the thing that. um Die Hard, Never Kevin group. It isn't, it is about Kevin McCarthy. They hate him. They've said that, you know, the world could be on fire and they're not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. 
The very fact, one of them even said the very fact that, um, that he gave them everything they wanted, that they didn't want somebody like that. Yesterday, when Matt Gates was nominating Jim Jordan for Speaker of the House, one of the things he said is maybe somebody who doesn't want the job should get the job. And this other guy who's willing to give everybody everything they want, well, maybe he shouldn't have the job. Because you certainly don't want to work with somebody who's going to give you everything you want, right? Hello? Hello? What what world do you live in? Uh, so there's a larger issue here. Yes, they're reveling in the fact that they are able to keep Kevin McCarthy out of the Speaker's office, the one he's already moved into. And last night, apparently, they ordered pizzas and they were delivered to the Speaker's office anyway. Let's hope he hasn't unpacked all his boxes. But this group, this diehard, apparently solid group of far-righters, they're also sending a message. Whether the next speaker is Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise or Elise Stefanik, they are sending a clear message. You don't get anything done without us. We have to sign off on everything or you get nothing. So there's a bigger picture here as well. Um, last uh, night, Claire McCaskill was uh, um, with Nicole Wallace on MSNBC. She is, of course, a former senator, and she has been a <laughs> plain-spoken, outspoken commentator on cable news. This is what Claire McCaskill had to say about this whole mess. This is such petty political posturing at a moment where a lot of Americans are paying attention. And the reason the Democrats are unified is they've decided the policy they believe in is more important than their petty political posturing. That they agree on so much they need to stay united. What message is the Republican Party sending today? What policy is it they're united behind? Nobody in America can tell what this is even about. What, they just don't like the guy? They didn't get the right office? They aren't getting the right committee assignment? Who cares? We've got a country to govern. And it shows these people are good at throwing firebombs and suck at governing. (laughs) Because they don't care about governing. Firebombs, that's the point. Headlines, that's the point. That's who this group is. Looks like uh, on the House of Representatives that they are getting ready for a sixth vote uh, for the next Speaker of the House. Sadly, because there was some talk that, you know, if if it looked like it was just going to be the same thing over and over again, that there would be another adjournment so people could, I don't know, have their little conclaves in the hallway. But... um Without Democratic help, they don't even have the votes to adjourn. (laughs) Oh, we need to take a break. We're going to be back with more. Uh, Kamala Harris was in Chicago today. We'll talk about that when we come back. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. It's just refreshing. 
This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are now beginning our uh, the process to do our sixth vote. As I said, 100 years ago when there was a contentious vote for speaker, it took them nine votes to settle on somebody. <laughs> do you think we'll hit nine votes? Do you think we'll surpass nine votes? Anyway, uh, Kat Kamek, who's a Republican from Florida, one thing Kevin McCarthy has been doing over the last couple of days in a, in a in an apparent effort to woo some of the more radical far right never kevin crowd he is having some of the more conservative members of congress the more conservative republican members of congress who support him nominate him so i like uh, every time hakeem jeffries has been nominated that i've seen it's every time it's always peter aguilar um, but every time Kevin McCarthy is nominated, it's somebody different. He has um, been nominated by Jim Jordan. Right now he's being nominated by Kat Kamek. He picks a really conservative member of Congress. Some are saying in an effort to show the more radical right, hey, look at me. I'm MAGA too. You can count on me. I won't be, I won't be liberal. I won't work with those darn Democrats. You can trust me. If Kevin McCarthy, I don't think, I don't think he would do it. We'll see how desperate he is. If Kevin McCarthy truly wants to be speaker above all else, he's got to cut the legs out from under the more radical factions of his party. And he should be going, he should be texting, he should be having sandwiches with Hakeem Jeffries. And he should say to Hakeem Jeffries, I need 20 Democrats. What do you need from me to make that happen? Now, maybe Hakeem Jeffries would tell him to hit the road. Because, you know, there's, depending upon how the Republicans play this, there's a possibility that Hakeem Jeffries could end up speaker. He has gotten 212 votes each and every time there's been a ballot. You need 218 votes to become speaker. Now, he's gotten all the Democratic votes and no Republican votes, so there's that. But if Kevin McCarthy really wants to torch those people, he will either make a deal with the Democrats to get, and they don't even have to support him. If he can get enough Democrats to leave the chamber, because the vote for Speaker is just the majority of those who are there, If he can get 20 or 30 Democrats to go out in the hallway and not come back in, he could lower the threshold that he needs to win and he could win. They don't even have to go on the record as voting for him, which would probably not do their political lives 
But he could make that happen as long as he, Hakeem Jeffries goes along with it. Because if that happens on the Republican side, we've already seen one Republican starting to vote present, which basically takes them out of the mix. If enough Republicans walked out of the vote, Hakeem Jeffries would be the new speaker. I can't imagine that he's looking at that as a, truly as a viable option. But come on. Kevin, what do you give us? We'll have 20 members go out into the hallway and sit on their thumbs. What will you do for us? Hmm? Kevin McCarthy really, truly wants to be speaker. He is going to have to do something unexpected because he keeps doing the same thing, thinking he's going to win them over and vote by, by vote. He is losing his support. The people who are voting for a third candidate or voting present were formerly McCarthy voters. If he keeps doing the same thing and expecting a different result, he ain't going to be speaker. And wouldn't it be exciting if he pulled some kind of rabbit out of his hat? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's in too deep. You know, he President Trump, who endorsed him for speaker yesterday wouldn't make a statement and apparently about 7:30 this morning put out a statement saying that Kevin McCarthy still had his support I don't know I don't think it's enough I don't think the never Kevin people care anyway I wanted to uh, tell you um, Vice President Harris was in Chicago today You know, she and President Biden are going around the country, kind of taking a victory lap about infrastructure. I'm sure you've seen the news reports. President Biden in Kentucky with Mitch McConnell by his side. (laughs) President Biden saying today, you know, Mitch and I don't really see eye to eye, but we know how to govern and we know what's good for the country. And when something's good for the country, we can get together to make it happen. Do you think that message was meant for Congress? I kind of do. Anyway, Kamala Harris came to Chicago to also talk about some of the money that the administration is going to be spending here. And um, she talked in general about how vice president or the president is you know, working from the ground up to do things that benefit Americans and benefit um, our future. Listen to this. We are building an economy, as President Biden often puts it, from the bottom up and the middle out. And I'll add from the outside in. With your help, we capped the cost of insulin at $35 per month for our seniors. That's about dignity. And it's about understanding that also allows our seniors to have more money in their pockets to pay for their retirement. We invested billions of dollars to make semiconductors right here in America so that factories like Ford and the plant here on the south side can use American-made parts to keep assembly lines open and make supply chains more resilient. We will remove every lead pipe in our nation. Why? 
so that our children can drink clean water and grow up healthy to fulfill their God-given potential. And all of this brings me here today, the largest investment in our roads and bridges in 70 years of America's history. Not bad, huh? Not bad at all. Um, I think we have time for one more real quick uh, bite from the vice president where she talked about uh, investing in bridges uh, across the country and how that's taking place now under the Biden administration. Listen to this. For decades, there's been an underinvestment in our infrastructure, which caused Americans to feel the consequences in ways big and small. Take the 95th Street Bridge, which was built in 1958. It has not had a major repair in decades. The result, detours and delays for families on their way home for dinner. Ambulances and fire trucks delayed when they respond to emergencies. And it means backups and load limits that waste fuel, increase pollution, raise delivery costs, and disrupt supply chains. It means supply chains that are disrupted so much so that the result is empty shelves and higher prices at the grocery store for families, delivery delays for small businesses, suppliers that cannot fill their orders, and factories that run fewer shifts, which leads to cuts to hours and wages. The consequences of infrastructure under investment have been a familiar story in cities and states across our nation. About 43,000 bridges, almost one in 10, show signs of severe distress in our country. And you know, for years people talked about this problem, but now I am proud to say we will finally fix this problem. And we will be back with much more right after this. WCPT Replay. If you're trying to build an economic system that's good for a handful of people and bad for most people, it's hard to do if most people get to vote. So how do you do it? Well, maybe you can appeal falsely to a misinterpretation of their religion. Maybe you can appeal venally to their racial biases and deep-seated misogyny ethnocentrism. Or maybe you just empower the mechanisms that are counter-democratic, spend hundreds of millions of dollars on influencing the selection of judges, particularly those who get lifetime appointments in the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary, into small states that elect U.S. senators with handfuls of votes rather than bucketfuls of votes relative to California New York, for instance. And then also make sure that, I don't know if you're in the South, black people don't get to vote as much. Keep listening to WCPT 820. Because facts matter. Listen to the Tom Hartman radio program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are starting on a new year. Hello? That, I don't know where that guy came from. Um, we are uh, starting on a new year, 
And um, we are going to be following certain issues that we've been paying attention to in the last year. One of the people we've been talking to on a regular basis is Michael Hawthorne, who's the environmental and public health reporter with the Chicago Tribune. He is the one who has been reporting on these forever chemicals. These are things called PFAS that uh, because of the, of um, because of their use in all different kinds of products, these PFAS have gotten into our water and they have gotten into our bodies. Um, we just uh, a few weeks ago in December, 3M, one of the big manufacturers of these forever chemicals, made the big announcement that they were going to start phasing them out. They were not going to be making them. They were going to give themselves a few years to get this done. But still, it's an acknowledgement that there is a problem and uh, an effort, while it might not be as speedy as we would like, an effort to do something about it. So we thought this is a great time to get Michael Hawthorne back on the radio and see what is going on and what is likely to happen in the next year. Michael, thank you for being here. Hope you had a great holiday. Michael? Lady B, I can't hear Michael. Hello? Hey, there you are, Michael. Uh, it's Joan Esposito. I'm glad you're here. Hope you had a great holiday. Um, Lady B, I don't, I don't think he can hear me. Should I sing the the Jeopardy music? Do 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 How about it now? How about it now? Lady B, can Michael hear me? Okay, well, why don't you, uh, Michael, um, well, he can't hear me. Maybe he can hear you. Why don't you just disconnect and reconnect with him again? Hey, can you hear me, Joan? Okay. Uh, let me give you a little background while Lady B is uh, is getting the phone lines squared away. I have talked to Michael several times about these things called PFAS. They exist in, say, fire-retardant clothing, and they exist in all different kinds of products that we come into contact with. They don't degrade, which means that these chemicals get into our water as we put these things in landfills and wash them and whatever. And our water treatment plants are not geared, don't have the equipment to be able to screen for these, to be able to pull these chemicals out. Very few of us, when we get a, a physical, get tested for these. But, ah, you can hear me now, Michael? You can hear me? Okay. Okay. Um, where was I? I interrupted myself. So the long story short is these chemicals, if you are a person, if you are an adult, heck, if you're a kid, Uh, Lady B, could you make it so that um, 
you only hear Michael as you're trying to connect with him? Because I'm hearing his conversation with you, and I'm not uh, intelligent enough to multitask this way. Long story short, you've got these in your body. I've got them in my body. We don't know how to get rid of them. And, you know, they're not simply inert. You know, if they were inert, it would be like, okay, no big deal. But they're not inert. The the studies are being done right now, but there are a lot of health problems, including some cancers that are connected to these PFAS and having them in our body. And depending upon where, you know, like people who get their well water, well, all well and good. But if your well water is contaminated with these PFAS, forget it. You know, um, there was um, one, I don't know if they were an Illinois family, but there were, there was a rural family, young family with a little kid. And for, I don't even know why, but somehow they got tested and they, the lab results were off the charts. How much of these forever chemicals were in their system. And like I said, neither our liver nor our kidneys get rid of this. They don't screen for it. We don't have the equipment to screen at water treatment plants to either test to see how much is there. That can be done on a special basis, but to filter it out, no. That's almost non-existent. Frankly, last time I talked to Michael, it was so terrifying. He told me, you know, he doesn't get, this isn't a commercial endorsement, and he certainly doesn't get any money. But you know how there's Pure and Brita and there's all these water filters you can buy? He said there is one company, they're called Zero, and they their filters will filter out the majority of PFAS that are the forever chemicals that are in the water. For Christmas, for the holidays, you know, I bought one of those two, three-gallon jugs that fits into your refrigerator that has a little spigot on the end, um, made by Zero, because I'm... You know, I mean, probably somebody like me at the age I'm at, the damage that they might do, I'll probably die of natural causes because cancer usually takes a long time. Some cancers take a long time to develop. But if I had young kids, oh, man, we wouldn't be drinking anything that didn't come out of one of these filters. Um, You know what? Let's take a break, and hopefully when we come back, We'll have all this squared away, and we can talk to Michael right after this. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Uh, Lady B is uh, trying to get a connection with Michael Hawthorne. A Chicago Tribune environmental and public health reporter. We've been having some technical difficulties. How are we doing now, Lady B? Do we have Michael? No, we don't. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Well, you know, maybe we'll get lucky and uh, we'll get that squared away. As I said, these chemicals end up in your body. There's no way to get rid of them. There's no way for water treatment plants to screen for these PFAS, these forever chemicals. 
and they are now being linked to certain forms of cancer and other illness. Toward that end, in the month of December, 3M, one of the one of the big companies that creates the products that have these chemicals in them, they announced that over the next couple of years that they were going to be phasing out these chemicals within a within a few years, two, three years from now, they will not be making any products that have these PFAS. Um, if but if you are um, if you have young kids and you can afford to buy one of these uh, filters, might not be a bad idea. Michael also said that this is the kind of thing where possibly in the future, when you go to the doctor for a checkup. Right now, there aren't a lot of doctors who even know about this. But in the future, this might be something that in a yearly physical you get screened for. Because, again, they are affiliated with some long-term cancers and other health problems that can develop over years and years. So, listen, if um, if we can't get a hold of Michael, we will see if we can get him back maybe tomorrow or maybe next week uh, to talk about this. So let's uh, switch back to our other big story of the day, <laughs> and that is the sixth, count them, sixth, six votes for Speaker of the House. We are now in the sixth vote. A hundred years ago, it's been a hundred years since it took more than one vote to elect a Speaker of the House of Representatives And at that time, 100 years ago, they went to nine votes. There was, just like there is now, there was a small group of hardliners who refused to support the main candidate. But after eight votes, the small group of hardliners caved in, and the Kevin McCarthy, the general consensus candidate of his day, was elected. The question is, are the Lauren Boberts of the world and the Matt Gateses of the world going to do that? They have already shown with their tenure in the House of Representatives that they seem to care more about publicity and sound bites and making a stir than they do about governing. Because that's what some of the more moderates are saying, you know, We've got work to do. We've got the business of Congress. And one of the Republicans said earlier today, we should have had three bills passed by now. And instead, nothing. The sad thing is, um, unless the Democrats cooperate, the Republicans don't have, Kevin McCarthy doesn't have enough votes to adjourn for the day. That's what they did yesterday after... Um, Let's see, did they take three votes or four votes yesterday? I think they took four. And then they finally decided to call it a day. Uh, we are now on the sixth vote. And um, looks like Kevin McCarthy is going down to defeat on the sixth vote. Here's why. Kevin, assuming everybody shows up and is sitting in their seat ready to vote, Kevin McCarthy needs 218 votes to become the speaker. If anybody doesn't show up, if anybody uh, votes present, that can bring that number down. But 218, that's the magic number. 
with every ballot, every Democrat has voted for Hakeem Jeffries, the successor to Nancy Pelosi. That's 212. That means Kevin McCarthy, assuming everybody is ready and raring to go, everybody's there to vote. Kevin McCarthy can't lose more than four votes. And he has already lost seven in this sixth round of voting. Seven Republicans are voting. There's basically the hardliners keep putting up these straw candidates. Um, This straw candidate now is somebody you've never heard of, an African-American Republican congressperson. I think he's from Texas. He doesn't have a chance. And he's basically just a placeholder for their anger and discontent. And uh, in that capacity, he has, as of this moment in time, seven votes. Kevin McCarthy doesn't have the votes to win. So who's going to blink? Who's going to blink? On CNN, they interviewed some of the more moderate Republicans, people who are staunch Kevin McCarthy supporters. One of them was just chastising the Republicans who are causing this disarray, scolding them. Um, But the other Republican, who's a Republican from Colorado, uh, King, I should have written down his name. He said that he supports Kevin. He thinks Kevin should be the speaker. Everybody should get in line. They should get things done. But, but, he also said that he didn't know how many more votes he was going to be able to go through and continue to support Kevin McCarthy if it became clear in vote after vote after vote that he could not win. Which is what a lot of experts were predicting yesterday, that the support for Kevin McCarthy may be squishier than he would wish, and that over time, some of his votes are going to peel away. And that's what we've seen happen. The last vote, um, number five, Kevin McCarthy was down to 201 votes. Yesterday, he was consistently getting more than that. He is losing votes bit by bit. Unless he makes a bold move of some kind, he's... It doesn't look like he's going to be speaker. A hundred years ago, the small group of radicals who opposed the consensus candidate, they held out for eight votes and then they caved. And on the ninth vote, the consensus candidate was elected. I don't think that there are enough Never Kevin Republicans to blink. I think that they're not going to feel that same pressure to get moving, get things done, move the process along because they don't care. There's no major piece of legislation that Matt Gates is dying to get through Congress. Lauren Boebert barely by the skin of her teeth one re-election. There is no major piece of legislation 
that she's eager to get through Congress? That's not what she's about. She's about speeches and television clips and sound bites. This time around, I think the situation, the landscape is a little bit different. I don't think that we are going to see the radical faction of this party capitulate. I don't think it's going to happen. What do you think? Hey, Lady B, um, how are we doing? Or did we give up on Michael or are we still working on it? His phone or our phone? Oh, well, that's interesting. So that pretty much means every guest we have lined up today is potentially in trouble. Okay. That's, it's good to know that our because I was just going to say, you know, as long as we've got the time, let's open up the phone lines. Can we do that, Lady B? Can we open up the phone lines? Yeah, give it a shot. Are you feeling lucky today? 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. You know what? If you can't get through on that line, you can always text me, okay? Um, Oh, some people, good. I'm checking checking the text line. Um, Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Aaron L. texted in. Bobert and Gates live for this. They would do this for months. I think you're exactly right. I think you are exactly right. This isn't ideology. They're not opposed to Kevin McCarthy because of some bill he supports or some stance he has taken. This is person. They don't like him as a human being. It doesn't matter. That's why I think it doesn't matter that he came to them. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a supporter of Kevin McCarthy. So he's no, he's no liberal. You know, they can't, the Matt Gates can't point to Kevin McCarthy and say, well, he's too much of a Democrat for us. Because he's not. I mean, after January 6th, he condemned what happened. He condemned briefly the people who made it happen, and then the next week he was down in Mar-a-Lago, almost literally on his knees kissing Donald Trump's ring. Donald Trump had nothing to say about Kevin yesterday, but apparently early this morning came out and said, yeah, you know, he's, uh, I think he should be speaker, he's my guy. Kevin McCarthy is not opposed because he is too receptive to Democratic ideas. Kevin McCarthy has just simply irritated, alienated certain members of his party, seemingly just on the basis of the fact that he exists, that he breathes, that he takes up space, that he consumes oxygen. They are offended by him on a cellular level. And couple that with the fact that they don't care. They don't care that they're derailing government. Not only do they not seem to care 
that they are derailing government? They seem to revel in it. Have you ever seen Matt Gates? If you've watched any of this on C-SPAN, Matt Gates is like a kid at Christmas, grinning from ear to ear. Like he can't get any happier. So I think that this time around, I think the majority is going to capitulate to the minority and God help them. Because whether it is Elise Stefanik that they finally settle on or Steve Scalise that they finally settle on, this tale is going to expect to wag the dog. And their message is going to be, look what we did to Kevin McCarthy. We can do that to you. Some people are predicting that even if Kevin McCarthy makes it through and somehow in some miraculous fashion gets enough votes to be speaker, that he will be one of the shortest lived speakers in the history of our country, that the radical Republican faction will find a way to get rid of him possibly in a couple of months. This is the chaos that we predicted when we were talking about the midterms ahead of time and, you know, what would happen if the Republicans took control of Congress. This is why we were saying all along it was going to be like the circus has come to town because the the far-right faction is so entrenched and so far right that they were going to do and say ridiculous things that no bills were going to get passed. And if they did get passed, they would be such radical bills that they would go down to defeat in the Senate and certainly not be supported by the president. The clown cars here. The circus has come to town. We are on the sixth ballot now for speaker. Kevin McCarthy does not have the votes to win. You know, what is it they say that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? I guess by that definition, what we are seeing right this moment on Capitol Hill, can only be defined as insanity. Utter insanity. So where do we go from here? Yesterday they took four votes before they finally called it a day. The sixth vote is in progress, but Kevin McCarthy's already lost. I wonder if Hakeem Jeffries is calling any of those moderate Republicans and saying, you know, guys, six of you vote for me, and um, I promise you, life will be good, and your bills will get a hearing, and you're going to look like, um, eh, if not saviors of the party, at least you'll look like people who cared about their job and about the country and about getting things done. Six of you, just six of you vote for me. Right. If I were Kevin McCarthy right now, I'd be doing everything in my power to beg Hakeem Jeffries to just call it a day after this sixth vote. Just adjourn. Say that we'll start again tomorrow. 
and then work the phones. He's not going to get enough support from the far right. So he's got to get that support from somewhere else. You know, Jim Clyburn, at the beginning of December, Jim Clyburn said in a social media post, if Kevin McCarthy really wants to be speaker, he should be on the phone to Hakeem Jeffries. Truer words were never spoken. We are uh, oh, we are going to continue to uh, to keep the text lines open. Uh, Reina, thank you for your text as well. Um, Gates mirrors his constituents perfectly. They don't care. Not, neither does he. It's all about obstruction and disruption. That's the maggots ret public clowns party platform. Yeah, the clown car has come to town. The question is, once the doors open, how many clowns are going to come out? Well, we're still counting. We are in our sixth vote for Speaker of the House. Nobody, it looks like, has the votes to win on this round. Will they adjourn and uh, try to figure this out? Or will we just take another one of those congressional bathroom breaks (laughs) and come back and try it again? We shall see. Let's take a break for news. Hopefully we'll get our phones fixed and we can actually have some guests joining in today and taking some calls. Uh, We'll be back right after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. We are currently in our sixth vote. Six, count them. Uh, Second day of voting, sixth vote for the next uh, Speaker of the House. And it looks like nobody's going to win. Okay, nobody's going to win this time around. The Democrat Hakeem Jeffries on his way to getting 212 all the Democrats, which is what he's been doing for the last two days. Um, The straw candidate, Representative Donalds, at this point in time has 14. That'll probably top out at 20. Those are the dissidents. Uh, And Kevin McCarthy will fall short yet again. Our executive editor, uh, Tim Hogan, joins us now. Tim has been involved in a lot of national um, and in at least one presidential campaign. Tim, have you ever seen anything like this? Well, by definition, no, because the last time this happened was 1923, a hundred years ago. You weren't no, around then. <laughs> I wasn't around. Are no you one. Sure? Yeah, no one. No one uh, in this Congress was alive when this last happened. 
Um, and really, it's just an opening of a Pandora's box. I really do think a lot of this is about norms and how Republicans have destroyed them in Congress. And I'm talking about things like the debt ceiling, taking that hostage. That used to be a bipartisan exercise. Now they always attach something to it. They threaten the full faith and credit of the United States federal government when they want something. And now we have another toy for them to destroy and blow up government, and that is the speaker vote. Now, this time it's, you know, just uh, harming their own party. Uh, but at a certain point, you know, we have our popcorn. We have members of Congress tweeting uh, that they've got their popcorn they're watching. At a certain point, it's just bad for all of us that the yeah. government can't work, that, that, that this is this dysfunctional. But Kevin McCarthy has absolutely uh, he is reaping what he sowed. Absolutely. And this is this is right here. This is the harbinger of what's to come in the next two years. I think that the the far right, the radical right, they're not only preventing Kevin McCarthy from winning, but I think they're sending a message, whether it ends up being, you know, Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise or Elise Stefanik, they're sending a message. You have to pay attention to us. You have to do what we want. Because we can do to you what we're doing to him today, don't you think? Yeah, no, that is it is absolutely a hijacking of the party, and it is exactly what they've told people to do. It is it is the result of for decades now telling their constituents and then having those constituents elect representatives who distrust all authority and institutions. And it's not like a healthy skepticism, right? It is a deep, deep cynicism about the what the the way the federal government works and what it is supposed to do and the belief that there you, you should not believe in authority or experts or your lawmakers or your representatives that you should send people to the federal government just to burn it down and that's the same philosophy that gave us Donald Trump Donald Trump's pitch in 2016 was actually perfect for what Republicans had cultivated for decades he got up on stage and said look uh, I'm a con man. I'm going to tell you I'm a con man. The system is broken. I've been gaming the system forever. But let me game the system for you. Now, it turned out it was a lie. He's actually just mm-hmm. incompetent and, and brazen and malicious and all of those horrible things. But that is the, the, this is the, in the same beat. Uh, we have to connect what's happening uh, now with what Donald Trump did uh, and what the Republican Party has done for decades. I couldn't agree with you more. And they had so many chances they had so many chances to get off of this train, and each and every time they were too cowardly, they were too afraid. I mean, imagine how life would be different if in even the second impeachment, if the Republicans in the Senate had voted to oust Donald Trump and prevent him from ever running for office again. Yes, it would have been painful, but they would have already been past that now. It's like they couldn't face the pain and all they did was push it down the road. Well, it's here now. Right. And and the the Senate looks like the most revered institution for us, for as much as we complained about the filibuster and the lack of being able to get things done. Even, you know, Democrats did get a ton of things done. Um, the Senate looks like a stable institution. We hand the reins of power over in the House to Republicans, and it's just absolute chaos. It is a perfect example of what you get when you elect Republicans. You get absolute chaos. And on the other side of things, you have Joe Biden today in Covington, Kentucky. Uh, you also had uh, Vice President Kamala Harris here in uh, in Illinois, in Chicago. Uh, but you have Biden in Kentucky with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, 
Republican, uh, Senator Sherrod Brown, a Democrat who's up for re-election in Ohio in 2024, a top target for McConnell, former Republican Senator Rob Portman from Ohio, the Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, and the Democratic governor of Kentucky touting a $1.6 billion grant to make sure that there is improvements made on a bridge that they all care about that connect the two states. And it is just like a perfect split screen of here's what's happening back on Earth. Earth, and mm-hmm. the adults are getting things done. And look, you know, you can you can watch a video of Joe Biden shake everybody's hand, and maybe watch him shake Mitch McConnell's hand in this video of them at this press conference. And you think, oh, I don't know, I don't, I don't like that. But at the very least, they are on the same page about something that's good for the American people. The House is just outrage theater right now. I don't even know what the Republicans want. I, I really don't. Do they I, even know what they want? I don't think they except do. For, except for what they're getting right now, which is throwing it into disarray, showing how powerful they can be. They don't seem to have a goal. It's not like they're opposing Kevin McCarthy because there's a certain bill that Kevin supports that they right. don't like or a, a philosophy Kevin has that they don't like. They just hate him. They hate the guy. They hate his cells. They hate his glands. They hate his DNA. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. You know, I don't know how they get out of this, to be honest. I know there's like a thought that maybe Steve Scalise, uh, who is is currently the minority whip, could be uh, a uh, consensus candidate. But I don't know why. You know, there are there are plenty of Republicans who have voted against McCarthy who have said they would vote against anyone in the current leadership. And the margin is thin. Whoever gets to be the next Speaker of the House only has a five vote margin. And my guess would be for Scalise, there's probably five people who would vote against him as well. So it'll be interesting. There is a question about whether or not there are Democrats in the chamber who will vote present to lower the threshold uh, and enable McCarthy to get across the finish line and maybe extract some concessions from him. You know, very wonky things like, oh, what does the balancing of committees look like? You know, how many members on on each committee? But but I mean, it's pretty. Don't you agree, Tim? The writings on the wall. Kevin McCarthy is not going to wear down this hard right uh, opposition. In fact, he seems to be even losing a tiny bit of his support to them. So if he truly wants to be speaker, he has to go to another well. He has to go to Hakeem Jeffries and say, you know, what what do I have to give you for 20 or 30 Democrats, you know, to go home for the day and, you know, reduce the, the numbers in the chambers? Don't you think those discussions, is he so opposed to appearing to be bipartisan that he would actually end his own potential speakership just to not reach across the aisle? Yeah, I mean, it's like hilariously toxic, right, that he he might have to do that. If he does do that, though, then he plays exactly into the critique of him from many of these right wing members, which is that he's not with them. He's not like them. He's not, you know, as Mitt Romney would have put it in 2012, severely conservative enough uh, to be the Speaker of the House. But I don't know what the other path is for him. To your point, people are not moving. And it's in it in the sense that it is moving. It's moving slightly away from him, you know, one to two votes between the first and now where I guess we're going into the seventh ballot, uh, there there are not people rallying to his side. So I don't know what the way out for him is. It would be good for Democrats in a sense that you could get some better balancing on a committee. But man, I have no idea how Kevin McCarthy governs a House majority like that. Kevin McCarthy has proven himself to be a man who, shall we say, blows with the wind 
Do you no. think if he reached across the aisle to Hakeem Jeffries, do you think Jeffries could count on him? I mean, if he says, well, you know, I promise these people will stay on these committees or I promise this or that or the other thing. I mean, he can make those promises, but will he keep those promises? He doesn't seem to be a man that has any backbone. Yeah. Well, you know, when that if and when that time comes, you definitely get it in writing, right? It is a uh, it is an agreement about how you will staff those committees. But yeah, I mean that is part of the the problem with Kevin McCarthy is that people don't know what, where he really stands, what his what his backbone is. I mean, think about back to January 6th, right? I mean, he was on the floor fairly soon after expressing outrage at Donald Trump. And then I feel like it was maybe less than a week he was down in Mar-a-Lago taking a picture with him because he realized, oh, wait, this guy's probably not going away. And if I do want to be speaker, I'm going to need his support. And that is what reporters were doing yesterday. And today they're calling Trump and saying, hey, do you still support Kevin McCarthy for speaker? Because if he doesn't, he will definitely lose. And, you know, Trump played a little little cute last night and didn't say this morning he confirmed that he does. Uh, I don't know where he is now. Uh, He was making phone calls to members of the House GOP caucus. Lauren Boebert went to the floor and said, I got a call from Trump. Maybe he should be making those calls, but to members who are voting for McCarthy and telling them to work with us to find someone else. So, you know, uh, yeah, Kevin McCarthy has 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 no backbone. Um, one one thing I'll say about uh, those conversations, too, is there was a lot of speculation yesterday about some vi- a video that went viral on the floor of like AOC talking to Paul Gosar, who's a very conservative Republican congressman from Arizona. You may remember him. He tweeted a video, anime video of like AOC being executed, which was a horrible. Uh, and then Matt Gates also went over and spoke to AOC. And people were kind of thinking, like, what is the conversation that's happening there? And she clarified last night on an Instagram live because she was getting so many questions about it, that they were coming over and basically fact checking the situation that you're describing, Joan, which is, hey, we're hearing that there might be some Democrats who are going to leave and vote for McCarthy in order to get something in return. And it's just people feeling out what the reality is. But the reality is, as of that moment, and I think right now, no, Democrats are not going to be there for Kevin McCarthy. So maybe the further we get down this road, that changes. But as of right now, it does not look like it. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think AOC also was interviewed on MSNBC last night because it was like, oh, you are talking to Paul Kosar. Oh, yeah. You are talking to yeah. Matt Gates. Like somehow, uh, like that never happens. You yeah, know, we only I reserve mean, that for George Santos at this point. Yeah. Only no one talks to George Santos. <laughs> little lonely George sitting there with <laughs> his little phone playing It's games. so sad. It's just like, man, it is not worth it. It's not worth it. That's going to be your your daily existence is going to the going to Congress in the halls and just getting harassed all the time. People yelling in your face, are you a liar? Are you who you say you are? I mean, like, how is that worth that job? It's just not. I don't know. But how do you lie so completely? I mean, it wasn't just, you know, every once in a while, somebody will get caught padding their resume. Oh, you weren't vice president of that. As a matter of fact, you know, you were never a vice president. That He lied about everything. Yeah. 
everything, yeah. right. every single thing. It's hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I was actually, I've been waiting for the piece to get written, and this may be very hard to do because you know he is uh, a talented Mr. Ripley, uh, <laughs> but but who know who knew him in childhood? Someone go find like his his childhood friends or anyone at any point who knew him and collect the story of like this is the George Santos that I knew. Uh, I, I will read that. I will pay for that. I'll pay for a monthly subscription to any any magazine <laughs> just to read that article. Maybe we'll do it at Heartland Signal. Uh, yeah. New, New York isn't really in the Heartland, but maybe we'll make an exception just for this one. Yeah, it was he? It's it, that's part of my game. Were they always crazy, or did they become crazy over time? We yep. can now add George Santos to the list of players for my game. Yes, exactly, uh, Tim. Thank you so much for your insight in this. I really appreciate you uh, popping in to chat with me about this. Um, We need to take a break, and we are going to uh, get on with some of our other guests right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As you know, when you listen to this show regularly, BuzzFlash.com is one of the websites that I promote. It is a progressive, they call themselves the Aggressive Progressive News website, well, I uh, I read them on a pretty regular basis, and there was an interesting article that was posted the end of December that really caught my eye. It was by Stephen Day. And, uh, well, let me just give you the title. Time for Joe Biden to embrace his inner dark Brandon. Something that I think uh, is 100% correct. So I reached out to Stephen Day, who is an attorney and writer based in Wichita, Kansas, who wrote that article for BuzzFlash.com. Uh, he's also written a uh, novel about politics and uh, threat to democracy called The Patriot's Grill. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So tell the listeners, give them basically a synopsis of what you wanted to convey in uh, your Dark Brandon essay. Yeah, I'm... Basically, you know, we we recognize that Joe Biden had success legislatively uh, over the last two years, Um, actually some remarkable success, and that's what he would want to do as president. But it's not really what we need him to be doing now, and it's not what he's going to be able to do anyways now that the Republicans have taken over So, the House. So... um, the reference to his inner dark Brandon had to do with uh, just the fact that I think he needs to become much more aggressive in pushing a uh, partisan uh, approach so as to try to do everything he can to make sure that the Democrats get control of the of the House, keep control of the Senate and the presidency so that they can pass the voter protection bills that are necessary to protect our democracy. Well, you know, one of the things that you say 
in uh, in your writing is that today's GOP is an existential threat to the survival of American democracy. The, um, what we're seeing today and what we saw yesterday, I mean, it, it you make it. And, and there is there are some real serious sides to what the GOP wants to come uh, have come about with voter suppression and other ways that are going to limit our democracy. But then there's also what we've been seeing the last two days where they harming our democracy with their paralysis, with their inability to come to any kind of consensus. I mean, what I've seen the last two days, I think, is jaw dropping. What's your reaction? Uh, yeah, it uh, would seem to imply that uh, pulling political stunts and trying to own the libs it doesn't make for a good governing strategy. Um, I, I just I think it's it's an example of the fact that you're not going to get any kind of um, effective legislative action from them. Uh, they're there to cause trouble. Yeah, you make a reference in your article to Harry Truman. Do you think sometimes I see glimmers of give him hell in Joe Biden and other times it seems like he's so prioritized trying to be bipartisan that it takes a lot of the passion out of what he's doing? What do you think about all that? I basically agree with what you're saying. I mean, I think that he actually has um, been capable of becoming more partisan than I expected in some ways uh, during the election. But uh, there's no question, you know, he grew up in a Senate where bipartisanship actually made some sense occasionally. And that's what he would like to be involved with. But it doesn't exist anymore. It really it really doesn't. And I was really worried at the beginning of his presidency that he would be crippled by that mindset of, frankly, politics from another era. He it does seem to me, though, that he while that might still be something he wishes for in his heart of hearts. I think he understands that the playing field is different now. What do you think? I agree with that. I mean, I I think that, um, or I was pleasantly surprised by how openly he has discussed the threat to democracy and how willing he has been to attach that to the Republican Party. And, you know, he ran a pretty tough campaign there uh, at the end. Yeah, he absolutely did. And, you know, the aviator glasses and the getting behind the wheel of the sports car. I want to see that Joe Biden. I want to see that Joe Biden uh, back again. What's one thing, you know, you know, the good news about this chaos that we're seeing in Congress means that maybe, maybe there is going to be more. More opportunity for Republicans to work across the aisle, if for no other reason than to refute the part of their party that wants to get nothing done. So what how would you like to see Joe Biden take advantage of this situation? Well, I I do think that it makes sense for him to reach out to uh, Republicans to see what can be accomplished. I am fairly pessimistic just because. Uh, the base is still the base, and I think uh, in terms of uh, going against the party and separately cutting the deal with Biden on legislation is politically dangerous for Republicans, but he certainly ought to make the effort. 
Yeah, I think so, too. But I almost I, I see this what we're, we've seen over the last two days, this schism coming to light. And if if the if the far right wing can basically say the hell with you to the moderates, don't you think the moderates at some point can say the same thing to them? I would love to see that. It would <laughs> certainly seem reasonable. I have seen no evidence of it. Mm. Well, hope springs eternal, Stephen. I, um, I, I hope I, I love reading what you write in buzzflash.com. I hope you keep up the good work and that you will join us again in the future. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, we are going to take a break when uh, we come back. We're going to be talking, we're going to shift to sort of a local political scene. We're going to be talking to one of the candidates who would like to be the alder for the fifth ward. You know, that's the seat Leslie Hairston is retiring from. We'll have that when we come back right after this. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. You have uh, an election, Chicago. You have an election coming up February 28th. In addition to the race for mayor, there are going to be a number of aldermanic seats to vote on. One of those is in the Fifth Ward, where Leslie Hairston has uh, retired from public life. And there are, I think at last count, 12 people who uh, wanted to, to be on the ballot for that seat. It is the Fifth Ward, which is the ward that contains the Obama Presidential Center. So there is a lot going on. It's parts of Hyde Park, Woodlawn, South Shore, um, and the Obama Center, which is still under construction and uh, still sometimes uh, in the news for various good things and bad things going on with the neighborhood and with politics there in general. One of the candidates who is eager to be the next alder from the Fifth Ward is Adrian Ermer. She joins us now to talk about herself and her campaign. Adrian, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Joan. Um, it's great to to chat politics with a fellow uh, Astra <laughs> union sister. <laughs> well, it's always great to talk to any union member, but if you're SAG after, you have a special place in my in my heart. Tell tell our listeners about you and about your background. Yeah, no, happy to. Um, so I am very much a quintessential Hyde Park kid. I, I grew up in the neighborhood. I, I went to all of the, you know, sort of ultimate schools in the in the neighborhood. I went to Ancona, Ray School, uh, did a few years at Lab School, and um, I'm a proud, proud graduate of Kenwood Academy. So all of those in the Hyde Park community. Um, and I went off to MIT to get a bachelor's in biology. And when I graduated, moved into the South Shore community. So I've been in South Shore now 19 years. So collectively 20 
21 in Hyde Park and now 19 going on 20 in South Shore. And I'm proud to be the only candidate of the myriad, many, many candidates uh, you mentioned who are running who can say that they've lived in, in two of the largest communities of the fifth ward for the longest time. And that's both, um, you know, a point of pride for me, but also I think um, a really important perspective to have given everything, as you mentioned, that is uh, that the fifth ward is facing and that is, uh, and on, and the projects that are emerging um, in the fifth ward, um, like the currently being built Obama presidential center. Um for a few years, I worked with uh, our state senator at the time, Kwame Raoul, who's now our attorney general. I managed his district office and uh, special projects for him. I had the pleasure of serving on legislative staff for Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, managing all manner and facets of legislation related to the Bureau of Asset Management, which is essentially the, the business unit that manages all of the county's real estate assets. Um, and then uh, did some time as a, an appointed commissioner with the city of Chicago for special service area number 42 in the South Shore community. Did were, Was um, doing that work for three years, actually, before I had to resign in order to run for office. Um, Tell me a little bit more about that. What were the kinds of things you did on a day-to-day basis in that job? Yeah, it, uh, for SSA commissioner, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it's an appointed role. It's not paid. Um, it's basically a volunteer role, but essentially as special service areas leverage um, special property tax levies um, and deploy those resources in a very laser-focused way within the borders of the designated special service area. So um, these typically fall along the lines of commercial corridors, so 71st Street and Stony Island. And in three years, I'm proud to say we invested over a million dollars in that corridor in things like private security, litter abatement, snow removal, power washing, um, neighborhood wayfinding, and, um, and identification signage and all that good good stuff. Mm-hmm. So have you always wanted to run for office? Well, always is a strong word. I've been, you know, <laughs> I've, 40 this, <laughs> I've just made 40 this year. So I would say for the better part of two decades, um, public policy is something that I've fallen in love with as a means to really transform the quality of life and the lived experience for folks on a day-to-day basis. And, um, you know, I, I ran back in 2018 and, you know, several years before that is when I really started to make that heavy consideration on if that is going to be a path that I pursue. Um, you know, like most women, I had to be asked, Adrian, you're, you're good at this policy stuff. You know, you should run for <laughs> office one day. And it's sort of like, no, 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 I don't know. I don't know if I'm there yet. Um, and eventually uh, decided to go out and take that risk in 2018. And, you know, and again, now in 2022, 23, yeah. And, you know, you've talked about how you've lived your whole life Uh, pretty much in the area that you would now like to represent. What have you learned about the area? Yeah, no, I, I think I've seen pretty clearly what 
kinds of economic development and community development can be created when you focus in the attention and the resources. I mean, 53rd Street from my days in the 80s and 90s to today, you know, night and day in in terms of the amount of development and the the number and diversity of businesses that exist on that corridor. Um, So I, you know, I want to see and, and, and make that same level of investments along Stony Island on 71st Street, um, the part of 63rd Street and Woodlawn that would be within my jurisdiction. But I, I, I envision the role of older person as being beyond the boundaries, these invisible boundaries that legislators create um, to make wars and, and, and really focus in on neighborhoods as a whole. So working with Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor to, to, to devise a plan that is consolidated and very focused on the entirety of Woodlawn, working with Alderwoman Harris and, and Alderman um, Greg Mitchell on South Shore and focusing in on 75th and 79th Street as well as 71st Street. I think we need comprehensive uh, collaboration around neighborhoods and being that so many of our neighborhoods are split across multiple older people, I think that's the kind of collaborative spirit most of our older people should have. And any new older person coming to this work should definitely bring that spirit of collaboration. There has been, <clears throat> while it is certainly something that we are glad to have, there's been a lot of controversy uh, coming from many angles, whether it was the worry about gentrification or whether or not it was an appropriate use of parkland. There have been a lot of controversies that have come up around the Obama presidential center. What is your take on the having the presidential center there and what it means for the people of the fifth ward? Yeah, I am super excited to have the presidential center in on the South side of Chicago, but especially in the fifth ward. Um, I think in a, in a in an area of town where resources have not necessarily found their way to right mm-hmm. we need something that's we need something that's going to catalyze the other downstream projects that contribute to creating a robust economic fabric right i have knocked so many doors and met folks you know in passing on the streets and there, there are lots of businesses that folks really want to see in the neighborhood that have never, that haven't been there in a very, very long time or have never been there. And, you know, a, a mega development that's going to draw hundreds of thousands of tourists a year is, gives banks uh, an additional reason to fund uh, entrepreneurs who are looking to open businesses despite the fact that they probably should have already been doing this as uh, as an equitable business practice this this development now gives them um additional you know incentive to to fund uh, entrepreneurs in the community so mm-hmm. i i'm very you know i'm very excited at the downstream impacts of uh economic development related to the obama presidential center um yeah i mean i know it's contributing to sort of housing anxiety and um, rising rents and property values. Um, And that's something that we also have to address. Um, And I think we can do that really thoughtfully and intentionally. Um, But I don't think, you know, dismissing the project out of hand because of that made any sense. And so I'm glad that we finally sort of 
worked our way to this point where they've broken ground and we're starting to to see some activity on the site. Yeah. Considering the fact that uh, Barack Obama started life as a community organizer, it seemed ironic to me that the powers that be at the presidential library refused to sign a community benefits agreement. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, I think a CBA is a very uh, important document. It's an important conversation to have. Um, and, you know, their, their hesitancy around signing something, you know, was, you know, initially disappointing. Um, but I was encouraged by the the continued conversations that they had about meeting and exceeding a lot of the goals that were already actually stated in, in the initial round of conversations around a CBA. So, you know, did they come to the table uh, as a good faith partner? I do think they did mostly um, and that, you know, we can achieve a lot of what the CBA coalition was was advocating for um you know, in individual policy proposals, um, right? Well, that's what drove me yeah. drove me crazy because they were making all these promises to the neighborhood, you know, and the, it seemed to me, and maybe I don't have some information here, but it seemed to me the neighborhood was saying, that's great, let's put it in writing and sign it. And then it was like, oh, no, we really don't want to put it in writing, but we'll promise you we're going we're gonna to do all this stuff. And I thought to myself, oh, yeah. why wouldn't you put it in writing? What would you be concerned about that maybe you don't make a deadline and then somebody you know is mad at you down the road i i found that puzzling yeah so i think certain components of the of the request from the cba coalition were actually were codified in in writing to the extent that the folks who are building the facility could agree to some things i mean there were several other policy proposals within the the whole the, the totality of the i guess the the, the advocacy request um, and a lot of things had implications downstate. You know, they were asking the mayor to sign on to something that really, the you know, Springfield had to make a, a final decision on. But Mike Madigan, at the time, who was the speaker at the time, wasn't wasn't part of these conversations. So it was those components, while are 100 percent valid, I think they're. You know, their their strategy around it was sort of misdirected. And I think if, you know, if, if all of these things that they that they wanted to have seen done, they could they needed to be um, directed at multiple targets, not just a private entity who was seeking to, to locate in the facility now. You know, the, their workforce numbers and participation is is, is exceeding what they've promised. Um, their contractor participation is exceeding what they've promised, at least based on the most recent numbers that I've seen. So, you know, I think I think they are adhering to the spirit and the integrity of the, the conversation around the CBA without having to have signed a, a, a document. Now, yeah, what, if I were an older person at the time, I would have advocated for, you know, coming to a table and signing something that's germane to a signatory. But, um, you know, I was an older person at that time. <laughs> well, she may be in the future. We're going to take a break and we're going to continue our discussion with Adrian Ermer, who's a candidate for Alder of the Fifth Ward. We'll be right back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. 
Hey, Dak Prescott here. Why do I choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because better sleep elevates my game. My Sleep Number 360 smart bed helps me fall asleep faster, keeps me cool, and effortlessly adjusts for my best sleep. That's more focus, more edge, and more highlights. And that means more wins for all of us. The Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 smart bed is only $899. Save $200. Plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. I'm Bob Burke, founder and chairman of Burke America Parts Group, a family of brands that includes RepairClinic.com, an appliance and HVAC parts solution company that's grown into an international brand. Before AmericanEagle.com, we partially launched a new technology platform developed by another firm. American Eagle helped take our technology to a whole new level with digital marketing, software development, and business insights into our key markets, appliances, HVAC, and outdoor power equipment, and did so both on time and on budget. AmericanEagle.com has the resources, experience, and talent needed to produce solutions. Our new technology platform developed by AmericanEagle.com has produced tremendous results with higher traffic, conversion, engagement, and online revenue. If you have any home repairs you need to take care of, check us out at RepairClinic.com. If you need a world-class website or technology project, then I would highly recommend AmericanEagle.com. Call AmericanEagle.com at 773-NETWORK. That's AmericanEagle.com, 773-NETWORK. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Adrian Ermer, who's a candidate for the Fifth Ward. She will be on the ballot February 28th when you in the city of Chicago are voting for new alders and potentially a brand new mayor. Uh, Adrian, I'd like to talk to you about what your policy agenda is going to be for the Fifth Ward once you are elected. Sure. Um, but I think... I think the most concise way to say this is that I have three very core pillars to all of the work that I want to do as alder person. And they center around inform, reform, and transform. Um, Inform being around transparency and accountability and accessibility to the office and the alder. Um, Reforming the, the ordinances and policies that are on our books and the procedures and processes that are on our books that are clunky, cumbersome, um, time sucks. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and um, and then transforming communities and the lived experience uh, and the day-to-day quality of life of folks in the community. I mean, I, all those three core pillars inform literally everything that I want to do. So as I'm on doors meeting voters, the three key things that keep coming up, keep coming up are neighborhood safety, uh, community and economic development, and obviously ward services. The the process of calling three one one and hoping that months later you get your tree trimmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> care about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking to Alderman uh, Gilbert Viegas um, a few days ago, and he said that one of the things that he would like to see happen in twenty twenty three is that the lawmakers, uh, legislators in Springfield mandate and create a city charter for uh, Chicago that shows exactly, you know, what who's got what responsibility and where powers are delineated. Do you have any feelings one way or the other about that? 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree that uh, increasing accessibility and access to all of the different units of government is important to, one, a healthy democracy, but also just like the day-to-day functioning of cities. Um, when I worked at Kwame Raoul's office, there was a, a booklet that, that, you know, constituent staffers used to help constituents navigate government. So <laughs> effectively, the, the staff of government employees and, and legislators gets a cheat sheet to help con- constituents navigate a system. So why shouldn't it be something that's more open source and like um, accessible to your, your average citizen so that they can navigate their own bureaucracies and, 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 and use their government more efficiently? That makes complete sense to me. Um, yeah. Whenever I talk to any of my friends uh, at the Better Government Association, they always give me the same answer. What's the one thing that could make, you know, um, government less corrupt or susceptible to corruption? And the answer I always get is transparency, transparency, transparency. What is one area of city government that you would like to see be more transparent? Yes, I definitely want to see more transparency around uh, the the city budget, specifically uh, the police department. Um, I think the people deserve that. And we have a right to know where our dollars are going related to uh, the major public safety arm of city government. Um, but I'd also like to see more transparency and, and accessibility around the permitting process. I mean, yeah, large developers, they, they can afford to pay permit expediters and all these other sorts of things to move their projects along. But, you know, for the, the average citizen who wants to just buy their first investment property, the permitting process is so cumbersome. Um, it takes forever. It costs a whole lot of money and, you know, serves as a barrier to folks actually creating generational wealth for their, their families, right? So uh-huh. why is that so much harder so and so hard for, you know, individuals who want to in, buy and invest in real estate? So I think that's something that we can look at, too, um, and increase transparency and accessibility around, Yeah. Do you see yourself being a part of the Progressive Caucus if you get elected? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I'm here talking with you, so... <laughs> My my ideals are, are certainly progressive and my values are certainly aligned there. Um, and I think it's important to caucus with folks who, who share similar sensibilities in that way. Um, but I also think it's important to, you know, not isolate myself in, in a particular caucus or like, I guess, ideals side of the caucus. Um, you know, you got at the end of the day, if, if you care about something and you need you need to get the votes and the progressive caucus doesn't have 27 members. <laughs> so, yeah, um, you got to. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. You've got to be somebody who really wants to come to this work with uh, a spirit of collaboration, who will have good faith conversations, agree to disagree, but figure out where we can make the, the compromise and get the votes to move Chicago forward together. Yeah. With um, the whole questions that came up about gentrification with the presidential center and whether or not people who had lived near there were going to be driven out because of, you know, um, that property taxes were going to go up as wealthier people paid more and more money to get, you know, a neighborhood adjacent to the presidential center. There was also a um, 
a measure that in uh, a recent city council meeting couldn't get a quorum to vote on, and that was the idea of upping the real estate transfer tax on sales of, I believe it was $1 million or more. You pay a transfer tax, folks, when you, if you were in the city of Chicago and you're buying a property, there's a transfer tax. And it's fairly, it's fairly small. And a lot of people who are especially advocates for the unhoused are saying, you know, let's bump that up. Not for everybody, not for the people, you know, who are uh, scrimping to buy that first house for, you know, $120,000, but for the higher end sales, um, bump the transfer tax up and use that money to try to create more affordable housing and more housing for the homeless. And when it, um, it couldn't, it couldn't move uh, into, out of, around the committee. It couldn't come to a vote because all of a sudden there weren't enough city council members to have a quorum. And yet there were city council members out in the hallway. By all accounts, Mayor Lightfoot was a little uh, unsure if that was a tax she wanted to support. And the people who supported her deserted. If that comes up for when that comes up again and you are alder of the fifth ward, where will you fall on this issue? Yeah, you know, I and uh, I I'm understanding having worked in government and on the legislative legislative side of things, um, finding revenue is a hard task. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and. I do think that the in, that the increase in the real estate transfer tax for houses over a million dollars is a viable source to find some revenue to take care of vulnerable people that live in our city um, and that live in a housing insecure way in our city. Um, I'm not opposed to it. You know, I am a realtor, right? And you know, there are lots of big developers who are not you know, in favor of this. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about the the need to serve the most vulnerable folks in our city, I that in my mind and in my value system precedes the need to keep money in very in the hands of the folks selling very expensive property. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I would be in support of that. You know, I, the average person in Chicago is not buying a million dollar home. Um, In fact, I think the median house sales in the fifth ward or somewhere in the, um, well, in South Shore are in like the 250,000-ish range. <laughs> um, Hyde, when you factor in Hyde Park, that goes up a little bit. There's some, you know, very nice properties in, in the Hyde Park neighborhood. But so, so at, at the end of the day, it's not affecting, you know, 80% of the people in the city, right? So mm-hmm. I, think I, I think that's a valid means to, to generate revenue for a very necessary human service. Mm-hmm. Adrian, where can people get more information about your candidacy for the fifth ward seat? Oh yeah, you can feel free to look me up on on the interwebs. Uh, all in for Adrian. <laughs> That's what I call them too. Right, uh, all in for Adrian dot com. Uh, four is spelled out F O R, and Adrian is A D R I E N N E. Um, I wanted to do something fun, you know, outside of the typical sort of citizens for and yeah. for, you know. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I like the alliteration. <laughs> 
And uh, on social media like uh, Instagram and Twitter, it's all in for Adrian, but four is the number four. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have any um, appearances scheduled if somebody wants to meet you and shake your hand? Yes. We'll be in the we'll be in the fifth ward making uh, coffee shop stops, and those will be uploaded to the website uh, as soon as we get those dates confirmed. Wonderful. There is a candidate. There's a candidate forum uh, being hosted by the League of Women Voters of Chicago, the Chicago chapter. Um, it'll be at Montgomery Place in the Hyde Park neighborhood, uh, which is right off of 55th and South Shore Drive, not South South Shore Drive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for spending time with us. I think you're going to be terrific in the Chicago City Council, and I wish you all the best. Oh, I'm so grateful for that. Thank you so much, Joan, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to your listeners, and vote Ermer. (laughs) Vote Ermer. Adrian Ermer, candidate for the Fifth Ward. We're going to take a break for news and be back with Jan Schakowsky. Find out what the heck's going on in Congress right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Listen to the Tom Hartman Radio Program every weekday from 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Congress has adjourned. Uh, Until 8 o'clock tonight, when uh, more votes will be taken to see if a new Speaker of the House can be elected. Jan Schakowsky has been eating the popcorn and drinking the champagne and watching the festivities for the last two days and joins us now to give us an update. Jan, have you ever seen something so crazy? Never, ever. And in fact, no living person, well, maybe someone over 80 years old, has been alive to see this kind of amazing rollout of, uh, you know, we we haven't seen a uh, speaker not elected in the first round since uh, for, for over 100 years. So here we are doing it again. We just had our eighth, or I should say Kevin McCarthy had the sixth, well, the sixth try at trying to get enough votes to be the Speaker of the House. And he has not improved one, two, three, four, five, or six times to get there. It's always been pretty much the same number. So I don't know what we're going to do at 8 o'clock. That'll be interesting. I have no idea. People, are, I think, are going to take a nap. It's not like <laughs> we've been doing anything much. It's just everybody's exhausted from this. You know, why doesn't Kevin McCarthy pick up the phone and make some kind of arrangement with Hakeem Jeffries? Because it is clear that he cannot get it done within his own party. You know, Hakeem, what will it take for 20 Democrats to not show up at 8 o'clock tonight? So, you know, what would it take? No, there's no path for that. There's no path for that. The the, the Republicans are going to have to um, find a, a way. And that way may be without Kevin McCarthy. There are people that are furious, for example, that he has already taken over the speaker's office um, uh, yeah. of now that he's that he's actually um, what what do we call it? 
he's squatting there. Squatting, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a squatter in the in the speaker's office. There's a lot of personal animus there. And I'm thinking that it may um, be easier um, for them to find someone else other than uh, that, than Kevin. I don't, I think he's pretty well super compromised, um, made most of the offers that, that he can make. And now, I, I mean, I met with some women uh, members in the bathroom and they were, I mean, they really can't stand him. Uh, it, it, there is definitely this personal uh, element here. So we'll see if they can, uh, they can get someone else that will, uh, that will run. In any case, though, I want to tell you, Joan, that I think that what we're going to see is that the right-wingers, it's 20 of the far right, some of the Trumpy people um, that are really holding this thing up, and that's their plan. And I think that whatever happens, that we're going to see a predominance of this right wing among the uh, Republicans, um, pretty much setting the agenda. It's it's not good. Well, that's what I think the larger issue is. Not only do they absolutely loathe Kevin McCarthy, but I think this hardcore group, small as they may be, I think they're sending a message, whether it ends up being Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise or Elise Stefanik, you better listen to us. You better pay attention to us, because otherwise we will derail you the same way we're derailing this guy. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's interesting, too. I, I'm sure you've been seeing in the news that uh, President Biden and Mitch McConnell are together, arm in arm. I know. And, uh, you know, um, christening a, a, a new bridge or something. Um, you know, the, 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 the contrast that there is real possibility. And I have to tell you, during the um, last session, the 117th Congress, with also just a majority of four in other words, Democrats could only lose four members. We got a ton of things important for the American people done. Working with the president of the United States, our bipartisan infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, the TIPS Act, so that we could make sure that we are manufacturing here in the United States. It was just absolutely amazing the work that we were able to get done. The Republicans are on a very different page. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Jan, for the workings of this next Congress, do you think it matters whether it's Kevin McCarthy as Speaker or Steve Scalise or Elise Stefanik? I think we're, I think the, the, the Republican um, ability to really govern in a way that's going to respond to the American people is going to be really, really tough. Um, we're certainly going to continue to press an agenda, for example, protecting Social Security and Medicare. That's not really a partisan issue. Everybody is for that. Um, and yet the Republicans have talked about not doing that. They've talked about spending their time doing investigations of the sort that uh, they mentioned, uh, you know, before they, uh, during the election, and Americans rejected that during the election. They want um, response to their needs. I'm talking about ordinary people, not just Democrats, Republicans. They want to know what are you going to do for us? Mm -hmm. And um, the Republicans are not prepared to answer that. 
all they talk about is what they're going to do to the the Democrats, the kind of investigation mm. that, they're, that they're going to do. Same old, same old. Kevin McCarthy, by all accounts, has made a large number of promises to the far-right group to try to get them to vote for him, promising them various committee assignments or that they'll lead certain committees, pretty much promising them anything they want, promising that certain rules will be adopted that give them more power. Do you think if it's if if finally, like at 8 o'clock, somebody nominates Steve Scalise and he gets a lot of votes, Will he have made the same promises? Will he be bound by the promises McCarthy made, or or will it be a clean slate? I think it's going to be pretty hard for any Demo- for any Republican um, to become the speaker without extracting um, goodies for the right wingers. I, I really don't think they're going to support anyone. Who is not, who is who is not committed to giving them committee uh, assignments for you know whatever else they might uh, they might want? I mean, let's face it. Look, Kevin McCarthy supported every single one of those people in their campaigns when they ran. Um, so you know he has already um, delivered quite a bit. But I but now I think there is just such animus for for him. But I do think anyone who's going to lead the Republican Party is um, going to have to bend to some of these far right wingers. And that is uh, not good. And that, But I think the outcome is going to be that they're going to serve for two years. And that's going to be it, because the American people want something for themselves. And I don't blame them. It does seem like the Matt Gateses and the Lauren Boberts, they don't care you know, they're not feeling any of this pressure like we're embarrassing ourselves. We're embarrassing our party. You know, one of the Republicans interviewed on CNN this morning said we should have had three bills passed by now and we still can't decide on a speaker. They really don't seem to care about the chaos. Is that your sense? No, they don't. no chaos is the point. Chaos is definitely the point. Creates the, the right atmosphere for them to have what they want. Let's remember... Um, that Marjorie Taylor Greene was not allowed to be on any committees during the 117th Congress. She wants to be on very special committees right now if she is willing to deliver a vote. He can only lose four um, votes in order to be, whoever it is, to be Speaker of the the House. So whoever it is is going to have to deal with some of them for sure. On CNN, um, just a little while ago, uh, one of the reporters said that Lauren Boebert made a statement that, indeed, she got a phone call from Donald Trump basically saying, you know, cut it out, get on board, get this done. And her when she told reporters about the call, she said she said, actually, you know, he's wrong. Um, He's wrong. He needs to, like, get on board with us. And basically it was like, you know, I got a call from a former president and I don't care. It's not changing my vote one way or the other. I mean, this is just. Well, you know, I'm going to look for the good news in that. <laughs> Even Bobert is saying no to Donald Trump. Maybe we're, rece- we're seeing this ultimate diminution of his power. So that can't be all bad. 
<laughs> I guess not. So do you think um, tonight, uh, Eastern time, eight o'clock, seven o'clock Chicago time, you're going to go back into session and have another vote? What do you say the odds are that there's going to be a speaker by the time today is done? I think it's slim. Um, I have no idea. And that's, you know, everybody's been walking around, especially the new members. So what's going to happen? It's like, I haven't a clue. Um, you know, and see, if they were really smart, if anyone on the Republican side were really smart, they'd go to Nancy Pelosi and they'd say, do you have any ideas of how we get out of this? <laughs> they don't seem to know either. So it's unclear um, to uh, to us that there really is a plan, that there's um, a a next step, that they're going to get us sworn in, that we're going to move into a a, a legislative agenda. It's it's uh, there's no evidence yet of that. And maybe we'll see something. I think the, the, the thing that would be closest to seeing that there's some resolution is that finally um, we see a new face um, that is running for the uh, for the speakership. I think Kevin has run the gamut now and then I, I, I don't see the path. I, I don't either, unless he does something like you just said, unless he right now is hiding in a closet, texting Nancy Pelosi desperately and 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 asking her advice on a way out of this. Because, you know, he's really as wishy-washy as this guy is. He really has made it seem like this is the hill he's ready to die on. I mean, he is like... I'm never giving up. I'm never pulling my name out of contention. It isn't going to happen. It almost seems like it's going to have to be his voters who just decide to go in a different direction and leave him stranded. I know, but who does make who who is feels proud about that? About six times doing the same vote and losing either 19 or for the last several 20 votes. Over and over and over again. I mean, I I see it as a an enormous humiliation, um, and um, you know, I mean, I I don't know if I I can't really say I feel sorry for him, but it's mm-hmm. definitely a humiliation. So I I just don't see that these. I think they're dug in more and more each time. Well, a hundred years ago, uh, there wasn't a speaker elected until the ninth vote. Jan. So, you know, the world is there. Is that all? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, maybe, but, uh, maybe but at that time, though, the radical, backwards. yeah, the radical maybe contingent that was holding out gave in. I don't know. Yeah. No, 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 this is, this, this is not, I don't, I don't think it's one of those situations where um, people give in to Kevin, because I, I do think that they think that, you know, uh, for some of them, it may be anyone, but, um, but um, I, I, I don't. I, I just don't see something changing so dramatically. I think I don't you're. Think we'll go to nine. Yeah. Well, you know, you could make history. You could make history. Well, I think you'd have to go to ten to make history. But anyway. Well, go go take a nap before. Uh, before you have to go back into the chamber. And thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us, bringing us up to speed on this craziness that we are watching from afar. Uh, Good luck. Thank you so much. You're always good to talk to you. Thank you. Okay. Good to talk to you, too. Let's take a break, and we are going to come back 
and talk to uh, Spencer Critchley. Remember he wrote that book, Patriots of Two Nations? Looks like those two nations uh, are existing very publicly and very loudly in the House of Representatives over the last day or two. We'll be back with more right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. The Rick Smith Show. I've said from the beginning, I want to go back to the you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington days where you've got to hold the floor. Uh, a talking filibuster is what if it's so important that something stops, everything should stop. In my view, my fear is that you, you do away with it entirely. And now we end up having these wild pendulum swings. Uh, while I do advocate for doing away with it, I do have some fear. The Rick Smith Show weeknights from 8 to 10 on WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. If there was ever a time where we needed to talk to Spencer Critchley, man, it is today. He is the author of Patriots of Two Nations, and I think we are seeing at least two nations uh, playing out their politics in the House of Representatives. Spencer, how are you? Did you have a great holiday? Oh, it was great. Uh, it was great, John. And, you know, um, much as I hate to take delight in the misfortune of others, I, I have to confess that yesterday was kind of like an extension of the holiday. <laughs> uh, watching somebody who richly deserves it experience some karma that he's had come to him for a long time. Yesterday, when I was uh, on the air and we kept checking in to see what was going on, I didn't say this on air, but I wrote in my notes, Schadenfreude, I was experiencing yeah. delight at the misfortune of others. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's not something we should encourage in ourselves or in others, but now and then, you know, you just got to accept the invitation to the party, I think. Well, what did they think was going to happen? What did, with these kinds of divisions that are just so uh, seemingly irreparable? I mean, wasn't this sort of this kind of nonsense, this kind of chaos, wasn't it inevitable? I think so. And, you know, this gets to something that for some reason people who engage in uh, scams of various sorts, whether it's outright criminal activity or con games, bordering on criminal activity, garden variety, lying. What they don't seem to take into account, even from the point of view of pure amoral self-interest, is if you are constantly lying and betraying and cheating then the same thing is going to happen to you. And you're surrounded by, because you're surrounding yourself with people you cannot trust and showing them that they cannot trust you. And I, there's an old saying in the South, if they'll do it with you, they'll do it to you. Mm. You know, if they'll mm-hmm. conspire with you to, to screw other people, of course the same kind of people are going to turn around and screw you the same, the moment it suits their advantage. So aside from the obvious lack of integrity with somebody like a Kevin McCarthy, um, apparent just lack of a moral core, there's the stupidity of this. I mean, even as I say, if you accept the premise, I'm going to live a life of pure amoral self-interest, it's stupid. (laughs) And that's part of what he's got coming to him. I mean, 
none of these people trust him for very good reason, and he can't trust them. And so what do you expect? I thought it was amazing, though, when I heard Matt Gates yesterday in one of his tirades say that when oh when he was nominating Jim Jordan the first time and he said Jim Jordan doesn't want the job so maybe that's why we should elect him rather than and he as much as said rather than this other guy who is giving us everything we want and I thought to myself, oh my th- he essentially said that. He essentially said, you know, Kevin McCarthy gives everybody anything they want, you know, so, you know, and he desperately wants it. So he's clearly not going to be a good speaker. And I'm thinking, are you listening to yourself, Matt? Is that really is that really what you mean? This guy is giving me everything I want. Therefore, he's a terrible leader. And we should vote on this guy who wants nothing to do with the job. Explain that to me, Spencer. Yeah. There's so much to sort through there. Um, so first of all, that kind of reminds me of the old thing, I, I refuse to join a club that would have me as a <laughs> I think that was Groucho Marx, right? Um, <laughs> you know, so how dare you give me everything I want, knowing what it's Exactly. Is. And, you know, you, you hear that kind of thing uh, in the current Republican Party frequently, where they almost rely on the, the Democrats usually to be the people with a grown-up, sense of right and wrong to keep them in check. And so when they do bad things, it ends up being the Democrats' fault for not stopping them. You, you know, you often hear that kind of argument. Um, I think another aspect of that is this absolutely impulsive, reflexive, non-thinking decision-making style where everything is just a gesture or a symbol. So... Why would we bother to consider the qualifications and the character of the person occupying one of the most important public offices in the land when we can just instinctively react to things like, I don't like how this feels. Let me choose (laughs) this other guy based on one indication, you know, one symbolic act, because that in the moment feels better. And that unfortunately is becoming a very common mode of thinking in the country across the board, this kind of always trust your gut, always trust your heart, whatever the first thing that pops into your head is, is the correct thing to do. So I think that's part of it. And then the one thing I cannot possibly imagine is at play here is that somebody like Gates would be referring to uh, the Roman general Cincinnatus, you know, who, who uh, was qualified because he was so uninterested in personal power. And he was a model for George Washington in, in, you know, in willingly relinquishing the presidency peacefully and setting the example that held throughout our history until Donald Trump um, as a as at that time, a modern day Cincinnati, you know, with a noble character. But Gates can't possibly be. No, I I would if I would guess. I doubt if he I doubt if he has that reference to hand. Uh, yeah. Secondly, how could it possibly apply to Kevin McCarthy or come out of the mouth of Matt Gates? Uh, so what I see when I look at the last two days of Congress is what we have talked about on this show before about certain members of Congress who are more interest in almost they're more interested in performance art. They're more interested in sound bites and speeches and fame that they really have. You know, I mean, Lauren Boebert, is she 
worried because that great piece of legislation she's got in her back pocket is not going to get a hearing? I don't think so. Matt Gates, um, is he worried about that that piece of legislation he was hoping to get bipartisan support for? No, it's like it's like the chaos is the point. Um, I don't, I'm not giving you, I'm, we're up against a commercial break, Spencer, um, and I, I don't want to have to cut you off. I do want to talk about that. Um, how sure. the chaos can be the point, or maybe you, you see it a little bit differently. I'm speaking right now with Spencer Critchley. He's written a book called Patriots of Two Nations. And we've referred to it in the past to try to get an understanding of the mindset of the people who follow Donald Trump and what it is about Donald Trump that appeals to them. And, you know, that a fact that that he touches their emotions in a way that that nobody else does. Um, We're going to see how things playing out today apply to that theory or maybe they don't. Maybe. It was just for Donald Trump, and he's gone now, and it doesn't matter anymore. Spencer Critchley and I are going to be right back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Your lawn drive home just got even easier. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Now weeknights from 5 to 7 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by author of Patriots of Two Nations, Spencer Critchley. He's been looking at the... At the political divide, at basically what divides us as a country. And when you see, Spencer, the the chaos that is taking place in the House of Representatives, chaos that seems to be for its own sake. It's not some overriding policy position or belief that the Lauren Boberts and the Matt Gateses are holding out for. It seems to just be that the the disarray is the point. What do you see? When what do you think about when you see all that happening? This, um, unfortunately, I think is the devolution we head towards as the rough moral consensus that used to unite the country breaks down. Um, You know, there never was a golden age. We tend to think that, oh, things were so much better in the old days. But if we go back through American history, we we see all kinds of uh, chaos and corruption and cruelty along with um, the high ideals and the wonders of democracy all the way through it. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there was, uh, for most of the time, a rough moral consensus about what this was all about that was holding things together. Uh, that broke down during the Civil War, of course, but uh, after the Civil War, we, we wanted to hope that it had been reestablished. But what we've been seeing in recent years is the breakdown of, of any kind of moral consensus. And, and in a way... Uh, well, I think we could we could cite two things. One is the right has adopted the most radical forms of, of French postmodern philosophy put forward by Michel Foucault, for example, uh, put forward theoretically, not necessarily as a recommendation. They've actually adopted that and put that into practice. The idea that the only thing that really matters is power. There is no such thing as meaning outside of power. And what's right and wrong is determined only by who has the power to enforce it. And there is no 
uh, fixed meaning of any words beyond what people with power say they mean. So, you know, Foucault was considered um, uh, an incredibly radical philosopher for arguing that kind of point. Uh, Derrida is another famous French philosopher who made that sort of point. And the Republican Party has explicitly adopted that. I mean, Karl Rove uh, famously during the the uh, second Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, uh, cited the idea that they were making up reality as they went along because they had the power to do so. And so you can see that that's part of it. Um, nothing really matters. They've accepted that fact. They're living in a fully radically postmodern world where there is no morality beyond power. Uh, Nietzsche would be another source of this of this worldview. And again, it's normally associated with the most radical thinkers, and yet this seems to be central to the current Republican Party. But another part of it is is not even as thought through as that. It's just the devolution into chaos as civilization falls apart. And another historical reference I'd invite people to check out is Sigmund Freud's 1930 book, Civilization and Its Discontent. And he was drawing on the awful lessons of World War I um, and was deeply, deeply disturbed and in many ways disillusioned uh, about the course of civilization and pointed out that beneath civilization in human nature is what he called the death drive, which is just the sheer urge to destruction for the for the sheer joy of it. And I think that's a lot of what we see here, too. You could go back into, uh, you know, medieval English history with the festival of the Lord of Misrule. There's always this sense of chaos lurking, which is, which can be turned loose if, if the shared moral consensus about why we have some kind of civic order breaks down and people lose all faith in it. I'm not saying all Americans have lost all faith in it, but a significant part of the Republican uh, leadership class absolutely has. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing now. It's just a pure gangster-style pursuit of self-interest and momentary gratification. Coming up against this kind of behavior you're describing, as we're seeing right now, the uh, other members of the Republican Party seeing this up close and personal, seeing the disarray, seeing the the lust for publicity and power over any kind of real governance. Will it be a wake-up call? Will the rest of the party stiffen their spines and say, enough of this nonsense, it's time for those of us in the majority, those of us who are more moderate, to be the grown-ups in the room and take charge? Will that happen? Can that happen? I'm not optimistic at all in the short term, and because I think the Republican Party as a party organization, now I'm not describing every Republican person, but certainly the people leading the Republican Party and the Republican elected officials have demonstrated thoroughgoing corruption to the point of betraying the fundamental ideals of the United States and even acting to overthrow the United States in many cases with somebody like a Jim Jordan. It's incredible that such a person still holds national office. Um, and so I think they have shown how thoroughly corrupted the party is as an organization. It's essentially, I've done a lot of work um, in the field of gang violence, and the parallels between the current Republican Party and a criminal gang are just so striking. Talk about that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. Well, it also points to the chaos that you see, which is typical of gangs as well, because nobody can trust each other ultimately, and the only 
people who are in charge are the ones who are, who are most capable of terrifying the people below them. But the moment they're no longer capable of that, of that it's over for them. But a criminal gang uh, or a failed state ruled by warlords, um, what they have in common is that only power matters. You're in charge if you're more powerful and more terrifying than anybody else. And only personal loyalty matters. Um, and and they're, to the extent that there's any kind of moral code, it's a sort of a mystical, mystical code of loyalty to the gang and to its leader. Well, that sounds pretty similar to MAGA Republicanism, don't you think? Uh-huh. And this is what happens when an actual morality breaks down, as you see in a state that has failed or has never managed to get established and is ruled by gangs of warlords, or as you see in actual criminal gangs whose line of business is selling, you know, fentanyl and meth or doing human trafficking or whatever it is. Um, it's very similar. It's just a raw pursuit of self-interest and, and it's a constant struggle for power among people who can't trust each other. And I think that that's what we see in the current Republican Party. And they have chased out all of the people who had some kind of normal conscience or some kind of even coherent conservative ideology. Uh, and what's left is the people who may have some kind of conservative ideology but have no moral courage whatsoever. They're, they're so opportunistic and careerist and cowardly that they will continue to be uh, collaborators with an organization that has literally tried to overthrow American democracy. And so that kind of organization is not subject to reform, just like we could wait around forever and wait for, um, you know, Nuestra Familia or MS-13 or somebody to reform themselves. It's not going to happen. Um, what's going to have to happen with this version of the Republican Party, I think, is they're just going to have to lose and lose and lose again. And I don't think that's, you know, we see that now. They're, they're turning on Trump not because they've realized what a terrible person he is uh, and what a threat to democracy he is. Just, they just turn on him because he's a loser. And they, they'd be happy to have somebody equally bad or worse if they're a winner. So they're not going to reform. They just have to, they have to keep losing and either completely fall apart as a, as a party and be replaced by a different one, or perhaps be replaced by a party that's still called the Republican Party, but is fundamentally different, which, you know, could happen. It happened with the Democratic Party, which until the 1960s was in the thrall of racists, and that's how it maintained its uh, political power, by its unholy bargain with the Dixiecrats, for example, and racists mm-hmm. elsewhere in the country. Well, is the fact that Donald Trump seems to be, appears to be falling out of favor, seems to be losing his influence? I mean, if he can call Lauren Boebert and tell her, you know, basically get on board, vote for McCarthy, and she can say, you know, he's mistaken, he should be on our train, not, and he should be supporting us. If, does that, is that some sort of sign that uh, this whole effort, this whole mindset is is collapsing in on itself. Obviously not in the House of Representatives today, uh, still alive and kicking. But if if they are walking away from from Trump, loser that he is, is is that a sign that this whole thing that we've just been talking about is maybe losing some steam? Or do you think it's just looking no. for another leader and changing direction? No, I mean, I think that the good, the good news 
from the past few months is that there are at least enough independent voters and moderate Republican voters that they could not bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker, for example, or or the other the other insane or corrupt candidates uh, that were you know the election deniers uh, that Trump was. Uh, endorsing, for example. That's a good sign, but that's at the margins. Uh, a Lauren Boebert or a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Josh Hawley or a Ted Cruz, for example, for that matter, or a Jim Jordan, these people have demonstrated over and over again they have no integrity. Uh, you know, moral considerations, basic patriotism is not what's motivating them. It's pure self-interest. And so... A mistake that I think is often made is to attribute all of this to some magical power on the part of Donald Trump. And this is why I resist calling what's happening now a personality cult. It has many things in common with a cult. But Trump is almost incidental. He didn't create this. He exploited it. It was already there. We already had seen Sarah Palin, Michelle Bachman, and before that, Newt Gingrich. And before that, Roger Ailes and... um, Lee Atwater and the 1968 Richard Nixon campaign, you know, where they established the Southern strategy of exploiting racism. And even before that, Joe McCarthy in the 1950s, whose right-hand man, Roy Cohn, was Donald Trump's mentor. This really goes back a very long way. And so Trump can go, and Trump, I think, will obviously will go one way or the other and does seem to be losing support now. But I don't think it matters uh, because what's been unleashed is independent of Trump. He was he, the, the, the old saying that Winston Churchill used to like to uh, quote was beware of, you know, riding the tiger because you can never dismount. If you, if you try to get off the tiger, the tiger will eat you. And the Republican party has been riding this tiger for a very long time. And, you know, it'll eat Trump. It can eat anybody, but the tiger isn't going away anytime soon until the Republican party comes together in some new form and repudiates this. And that's going to have to be, Ultimately, a moral repudiation. And I think it's going to be a long, hard process. I, I think that, um, you know, people are reluctant to draw parallels with Nazi Germany for good reasons, because you don't want to trivialize the, the just, you know, cosmic scale of the Holocaust. But there are real parallels we need to learn from. And the Germans it only really started coming to terms honestly with what they had done in World War II during the 60s as the new generation was coming up. And it took them decades of hard work. And it's a tribute to them that they have been doing the hard work to face what they did. But, you know, the United States is going to have to go through, especially the Republican Party, is going to have to go through a similar process of facing what it's done. And that's going to take a long time. It's going to be extremely painful. And it's the last thing most people ever want to do is face their own culpability for very, very serious wrongs. We need to take a break. Um, I want to, when we come back, Spencer, I mean, I think that if there is a great um, moral awakening, a uh, rejection of the of the current morality, that would be great. But I am afraid you may have just set the bar too high. And I'm wondering if we can set the bar a, a little bit lower. I'm talking to Spencer Critchley, author of Patriots of Two Nations. We're going to be right back after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. 
I'm speaking with Spencer Critchley, author of Patriots of Two Nations. And before we went to break, he was talking about how the Republican Party really needed to face the morality of what they have done and not done. And Jonathan Last, who's a conservative columnist, Spencer, that I read all the time, he wrote months ago, back when Herschel Walker was still running to be the senator from Georgia, and he was commenting on the fact that Republicans will turn on somebody they perceive to be a loser, but they are... That is the the losing aspect that you talked about before is what they are rejecting. They are not saying we should turn our back on this particular person because they are amoral or they do bad things or they lie to us. They, it, He said, I'm very worried about the Republican Party because rather than doing what you just said, looking at the morality of a person and a situation, it was just, well, he's a winner, he's a loser, he's a winner, he's a loser. And his argument was, if that's your only bar, then if you get the next amoral, lying, cheating, defrauding person, you will vote for them if you perceive them to be a winner. That morality has been, for most, for many Republicans, morality has been removed from the equation. And it seems unlikely that it's coming back anytime soon, Spencer. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's that's why I think that the Republican Party in the short term, like the next few years, just has to lose because they have shown they're thoroughly corrupt and have embraced this nihilistic um, pursuit of power where power is the only justification and it's and it's all that's needed to justify anything. Um, and so we must not be naive about that. Now, but at the same time, I don't think democracy can recover fully or even mostly without a moral reckoning, because ultimately democracy does depend on a shared moral consensus. And we lose track of this in our sort of instrumental, rational approach to democracy as just a system of goods and services that we argue over in, in terms of how you know government services will be distributed and how we'll pay for it. Ultimately, a nation is a story uh, that we all agree is true, you know, that has some kind of meaning. Every nation we know of is essentially invented as a story, including ours. It's in ours explicitly. I mean, America is famously an idea. You know, it's, that's the point of America. It's a set of, of ideas that we agree are at the center of this vision of the country we're trying to build. And that's essentially a moral consensus. And that's what's gone that's what we've broken down. It's as if one way of looking at it is we've been strip mining democracy for a very long time. Uh, I think we all share uh, guilt for that, but it's been being done very aggressively by the Republican Party in recent decades and accelerating in recent years, where it's just going for personal advantage and elevating individual freedom, which was the original democratic value to pure self-interest, which is nihilistic and ultimately atomistic. It fragments the moral consensus. We have no reason to cooperate with each other anymore. All we should be doing is going out for whatever we personally can get and maybe our direct biological relatives, and that's it. And I think that's that's what we're wrestling with here. And so 
I agree totally. Uh, Tim Miller, you know, the deeply disillusioned former Republican operative, who I think is a great pundit from the from the you know, morally conservative right, uh, the moral conservative right is great on this too. You know, the utter nihilism of his former party, uh, which he sometimes summarizes as "nothing matters." LOL. Um, it's kind of an explicitly adopted by a lot of Republican operatives now. That, um, that in the short term needs to be defeated politically. Um, but in the longer term, we must have a moral reckoning as a country. And, and at the minimum, most of the, the, the majority of us have to morally repudiate this behavior. Um, another way to look at it is that morality depends on social pressure. Ultimately, we a lot of us liberals would like to think that people are naturally good in this kind of, you know, Jean-Jacques mm-hmm. Rousseau vision of the sort of noble savage and people are only corrupted by society, but left to their own devices, they'll all be sort of living in a happy communal commune. Um, sorry, communal commune is redundant, but a <laughs> commune of people sharing and nurturing each other. Uh, but in fact, you know, history shows us that people are a mix of, of light and dark. And a lot of what maintains the moral consensus is simply social pressure, peer pressure, of the social agreement that some things are not right. And if you remove that social agreement, there are a surprising and that really can be disturbing number of people who are happy to to just become show become the worst awful version of themselves, which we've seen, you know, in society after society. Again, being careful with the comparisons to Nazi Germany, but Germany was Germany and its its predecessors, you know, Austria and Prussia were the peak of civilization in the 19th century. You know, they, they produced Beethoven and Mozart in the 18th century and Goethe, you know, and, and Kant and Hegel and, and Freud and, and these incredible geniuses, Einstein. Uh, and yet they descended into the, the worst barbarism. And, and that happened, you know, similar things have happened in Italy and Japan. And, and now, again, not as horrifying as those cases, but in the United States. And a lot of that is, what happens when the structures of civilization break down and we discover what happens when human nature is allowed to just run wild? Some people, I think most people, as we're seeing now, continue to try to do the right thing and somehow try to hold civilization together. Mm-hmm. But a frightening number of people will embrace just naked self-interest and aggression and just to become the worst versions of themselves. So you're really optimistic about 2023. Yeah, I get that sense. Everybody <laughs> I mean, the, the, upside, the upside is that Germany is now one of the most enlightened countries in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look at the transformation of Japan and uh, Italy. You know, they've re- recently they've unfortunately done some backsliding. But, you know, Italy's a, a, a magnificent center of civilization and art and beauty and culture and just the spirit of much of what's wonderful in life. Um, so it's all there in, in the in the mix of human nature. But I, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that this doesn't fix itself, and it's not going to fix itself through any kind of set of bureaucratic adjustments, and it's, it's not going it, to fix itself legalistically either. Much as I think Trump, for example, richly deserves to be criminally prosecuted and even jailed, that's not going to fix the problem. We have to confront, first of all, the political defeat of this nihilistic version of um, republicanism, but then more importantly, 
the moral uh, defeat of it and the reestablishment of the basic um, humanistic morality uh, that is the true foundation of democracy. That's and we must take that that effort seriously. I uh, I've just declared we're going to do a regular segment checking in with Spencer Critchley to see if anything has gotten better. Um, we'll do this segment once a month. And maybe we'll start like a report card. Spencer, thank you so much Yeah, for being with us today. That's going to do it for us. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow. Have a great evening, folks. Good night.